0: This is episode 43 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, I talk about the first comedy magician, Imro Fox. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. This is episode 43 and I am your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. That's me. The Magic Detective Podcast is your podcast home for all things related to magic history. If you're new to the podcast, please check out the 42 previous episodes as you might find something interesting there. Uh, really fast, uh, the way I do this program, I give a little bit of news first and then I get into the feature. So uh, last podcast number 42 was about a fellow named Dr. Walford Bodie. And if you check out my blog, you'll see the most amazing thing and that is Dr. Walford Bodie's house is for sale. And what an amazing home it is. It's just incredible. It's located in Macduff, Scotland, the same town in which he's buried. And I found out about this from a school teacher at the Macduff School who uh, wanted to let me know that his students were going to uh, listen to my podcast right before they were going to present a magic show slash documentary on Bodhi at their school that they put together. And they've already done it And I've seen pictures from the program And the show looks like it was incredible So a big shout out to Mr. McKay's class Congratulations on your program And for keeping the spirit of Dr. Walford Bodie alive Well done Oh, and uh, I do want to mention something about the last podcast That I may have gotten wrong I mentioned that Bodie took his uh, first name Walford Uh, from his brother-in-law. This uh, theory came from Ricky Jay's book, Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women. But uh, a couple other sources uh, say that the name uh, likely came from a popular book of the time called Walford's List, which listed the rich and famous of the day. So I have a feeling, just given what I've read about Bodie, it's likely that his, the Walford name came from this book, The Walford's List, so it's just a little correction from last week. Also, this week, um, this past week, was the 20th anniversary of the passing of Doug Henning, and I posted about this on my Facebook page, and I was quite overwhelmed by the response from the post, and thank you really quick. Thank you to everybody that uh, wrote something or at least liked the post. Joel Bauer shared an incredible story of meeting Doug when Joel was only 19. Uh, other people shared having seen Doug's show live and, and their thoughts about Doug Henning. One person posted uh, that he really didn't get the whole Doug Henning thing and was asking if I could explain it, which I I honestly really appreciated this post. Uh, He wasn't putting anybody down for liking Doug. He was just saying, look, I'm from a different generation. I don't get it. Uh, Can you explain it to me? So I'm going to just say a few things about that now. First, the historical context. Back in the 1970s, there was no magic on TV. Yes, there was Mark Wilson. Uh, He had his TV shows, but they weren't nationally broadcasted. So... Me in particular, I never saw Mark Wilson until years later. Magicians just were not on TV. They weren't on talk shows or anything of that kind. Not until Doug Henning showed up. He brought magic back to the masses. He's the one that really is credited for the, the, the new resurgence of, uh, of magic that continues on until today, quite frankly. He started, of course, with his show on Broadway, which was simply called The Magic Show, which a big hit that nobody expected that to happen, and it, and it turned out to be a wonderful uh, wonderful musical on Broadway. Then via his TV appearances and TV specials. And I'll tell you this, if you watch his TV appearances, like on The Tonight Show and uh, Merv Griffin and whatever they, have, they might have on YouTube, uh, they're still pretty good. Um, ignore the costumes. They're a product of a different time. But the rest is is good. The TV specials, unfortunately, suffered, uh, in my opinion, from terrible writing. And I've said it before. The writing was just terrible. Awful, awful. Um, but if you saw Doug Henning live in person, most of that... Corny patter was gone Doug was best when he was just being Doug And not trying to be a comedian And actually, I think about it A lot of the bad writing on the shows Were jokes for the hosts Which just made it even worse Um, I think in all the specials There were maybe only two tricks That I can think of off the top of my head That didn't play right on TV And I'm sure I mentioned those On my two previous Doug Henning episodes. So if you have not uh, listened to those, go back and check them out because they're both good. What I do is I go through all the TV specials and I talk about the material and the um, the great things from the specials. But again, unfortunately um, the specials, uh, they don't hold up as well as the Copperfield specials, for example, but, uh, but there's still great magic there. So I encourage you to go back and check that out and, and just look at the way Doug performs. He is not mean. He's not scary. He's not dark. He's not brooding. He is uh, very energetic. He's very enthusiastic. He's very happy about what he does. It's a very different take on magic. And uh, even today, I don't think, I don't know that there's ever been anybody that quite has that same kind of um, presentation when they uh, do their magic. So uh, all those things combined really made Doug something very unique. And that's why so many of us were um, inspired by Doug Henning. Now, if you're not aware, uh, I also have a blog. I mentioned it just a minute ago. The blog is at themagicdetective.com. And... There are some 700 or so articles on magic history. Houdini is mentioned in at least 300 of the articles, though they're not all about him. But speaking of Houdini, I recently was going through the site trying to clean up things a little bit, and I stumbled upon an article that I wrote back in 2010. It was an article about uh, the hotels that Houdini stayed in while he was in Washington, D.C., and for whatever reason, I had unpublished the article, so it was sitting dormant in my drafts folder, and I decided to check it out, and I I found the problem out really quick. Some of the information was wrong. What? Wrong? The magic detective was wrong? Yeah, yeah, it happens. And um, when I'm wrong on the blog, it's fairly easy to correct when I'm Wrong on the podcast I have to Can't correct that so easily Other other than putting a post up in the um, Following episodes Or that kind of thing So, But no, what happened was is For the longest time people thought That Houdini Did one straitjacket Escape in Washington, D.C. And then there was a, We realized there was a second one And well, that must be at the same location No, there were two different, very separate Straightjacket Escapes in Washington, D.C., and back 2010 when I first posted this, I wasn't quite aware of that, and um, uh, now I am. I've I've, I've since, you know, written about both of the uh, Straightjacket Escapes. I just hadn't corrected that in the uh, D.C. Hotel article, so I wanted to clean that up, and I found a, uh, a wonderful image of the Willard Hotel from 1905, about the same time Houdini would have stayed in the hotel. So I included that on that article as well. So I encourage you to go check that out. It's a very short piece, but it's uh, it's pretty cool. Anyway, long story short, um, I corrected the information. As strange as that is, uh, around that same time, I began to work on today's episode, episode 43. And lo and behold, the guy that I decided to speak about today, has a connection to hotels in Washington, D.C., and as soon as I saw that, I was I had to laugh because I thought, well, I definitely picked the right person. That's for sure. So, here we go. The story of Imro Fox. His birth name was Isidore Fuchs. He was born May 21st, 1862, in Bromberg, Germany. In 1874, he came to the United States. He would eventually find work at a beer garden in new york city sometime later he moved down to washington dc to become a chef at the hotel lawrence which was near 13th and east street the lawrence hotel was popular among show business people incidentally fox was around 18 years old but besides being a chef He was also an amateur magician on the side. Apparently, it was known that he could do magic because he was called upon to solve a serious problem. The year was 1880, and a troupe of performers had arrived in town whose star was a magician. But the star was apparently a little too friendly with the bottle. In other words, he was a drunk and the manager was concerned that they, uh, well, that they might have to cancel the date due to the condition of the magician. The artist's manager shared his problem with the hotel manager, and uh, alas, a solution. It turns out the hotel chef is an excellent magician, he said, so they worked something out. In the book The Old and New Magic by Henry Ridgely Evans, it describes the events perfectly, and I'm going to uh, relate to you. All of that dialogue from the book. It starts like this: "The chef, I believe," said the manager politely. "I am," said Fox. "You're an amateur magician. I amuse myself with legerdemain occasionally. You're the man I'm looking for. I'm the proprietor of a vaudeville company playing at the Barton and Logan Musy. The gentleman who does the magic turn for me has disappeared, gone on a prolonged debauch. Ah." I see, interrupted Imro, a devotee of the inexhaustible bottle. I want you to take his place, said the manager, and fill out the week's engagement. I will arrange matters with the hotel proprietor for you. Donner and Blitzen, cried Fox. Why, I've never been on stage in my life. I'd die with fright. Face an audience? I'd rather face a battery of cannons. Nonsense, answered the theatrical man. Do help me like a good fellow. It will be money in your pocket. Fox was making about $15 working as a chef, and he was offered $50 to work as the magician. And Fox bowed to the pressure and debuted that night wearing a borrowed suit. Again, according to the book The Old and New Magic, with fear and trembling he made his bow and broke the ice by the following allusion to his bald head. Ladies and gentlemen, why is my head like heaven? You give up? Good. Because there is no parting there. Amid the shout of laughter occasioned by this conundrum, Fox began his card tricks. His debut performance at the Barton and Logan dime Museum in Washington, D.C. was a hit. Now, let me just add some layers onto this. I am from Washington, D.C. I have studied and researched many of the magic performers that came to town or that lived here or so forth. In all my years, I have never heard of the Barton and Logan Dime Museum. Before going any further in the research on Imro Fox, I had to find out where this place was located. Well, it turns out, it was located in a very famous location. It was in what we call the Federal Triangle area. Barton and Logan's dime Museum sat where the old post office pavilion would be built. And that location now is the Trump International Hotel. And what I found even more fascinating is that years before, before I became a full-time performer, I used to busk in this same area, doing magic and and, uh, close-up magic and things for tips. It just struck me as kind of wild that I was right there where the original Dime Museum was located. Anyway, back to the story. By all accounts, he was a hit from the very start. He never returned to the life of food preparation. Nope. His skills were meant for the stage. What made Imro Fox unique was that he was funny. He may have been the first true comedy magician. He was not a burlesque of a magician, a satire of a magician, if you will. No, he did legit magic, but said hilarious things during his routines. And I've read where his comedy was better than his magic, but his magic was still very good. So his magic career began in 1880. He was popular in America, but in 1890, with no bookings, he scheduled a trip to England. That's right. He went to England with no bookings. People thought he was crazy to do so, but before you know it, he got booked. And he soon became a sensation in England and all over Europe. He had a a quick wit, dry sense of humor. He worked fast, meaning he did a lot of tricks in a short period of time. His comedic dialogue set him apart, of course, from the other acts. One feat that is singled out in many periodicals is a trick where Fox exchanged the heads of a black and white dove. Did I say that too fast? The the trick itself dates back to ancient Egypt and that master of magic, Didi. The way Imro Fox presented it, he would take a white dove and pull its head off. And then he would take a black dove and pull its head off. And then he would exchange the two heads so that now the white dove had the black head and the black dove had the white head. So, a pretty amazing feat. Another effect mentioned in the pages of the Linking Ring magazine involved rabbits. A pair of rabbits were produced by an empty vase. Then the magician could make over 200 small rabbits drop down from the gridiron. A perfect rain of rabbits. Suddenly, all were made to vanish except for the original two rabbits. That's pretty wild. In 1898, American theatrical manager Michael B. Levitt had an idea for a touring show with three competent magicians. He chose Surveille Roy, Frederick Eugene Powell, and to round it out, he wanted something a little different, so he went with Imro Fox because he was a comedy magician. They would be called the Triple Alliance, and they may have been more trouble than they were worth. Uh, all three were great performers, but tensions arose pretty quickly out of necessity when Imro Fox was chosen to be the stage manager. Suddenly, he had a position of authority and was telling the other two what to do and what not to do, and this caused major tensions between Fox and Leroy. Survey Leroy and his wife did not think they should be taking orders from Imro Fox. But it's possible more of the tension could have been actually from their manager, MB Levitt, who hadn't paid them and wanted them to, on top of everything else, pick up their travel fees. The three performers decided to break out together, meaning they dumped Levitt, and continued to do a version of the show on their own. Eventually, however, they disbanded when they realized that the huge amount of money they were making weren't that much when they split them up three ways. Leroy had a shop where he built many magic props and illusions, and it appears that Imro Fox... Uh, worked for him in the shop. There are uh, numerous pictures of Fox at the shop working on some prop, and surveyingly, Roy is usually present in most of those pictures. I supposed that maybe the rumors of them not getting along may have been a little exaggerated, but one thing that did come out of their work is the Triple Alliance Uh would be the creation of a new show by Survey Leroy called The Monarchs of Magic. The idea of three people in a show was more than clever, and the comic relief that followed was ideal. Leon Bosco would take the role in Survey Leroy's show that Imro Fox had had in the Triple Alliance. This then is from the November 1904 issue of the Sphinx magazine. Fox is in England when this was written. Imro Fox at the Grand, Manchester. Put in a week performing card and billiard ball manipulations, dying handkerchief tricks, and an adaptation of the crystal ladder. A number of billiard balls are placed in a frame on top of the ladder. A hat is placed underneath. The balls vanish from the frame and roll down the zigzag stairs, and on lifting up the hat, the balls are seen to be changed into one giant ball. His favorite trick of twisting off the heads of a black-and-white pigeon, restoring them, but owing to the careless assistant, they are put on wrong. The error is made right. The production of a rabbit pulled into two paper ribbons from a hat, which is placed in a tub, from which are taken a couple other tubs, concluding with a flagstaff. There's a funny note I found in the pages of the Conjurer's Monthly magazine, which read... It's rumored Fox has two new tricks and two new jokes, but this rumor cannot be corroborated. <laughs> I don't know why I find that funny. Two new jokes and two new tricks, but don't, don't, don't quote me on that. Okay. Okay. In 1908, Imro Fox is on his own and has been for many years. But here's the lineup of material he did then. Reprinted from a program at the Majestic Theater, September 14th, 1908. It says he did the Chameleon Handkerchiefs, which is the Dying Handkerchiefs. Doves Beheaded, we know what that is. Coffee, Milk, and Sugar Trick, which was extremely popular back then. Backhand Palm of Six Cards. Five selected cards found. Billiard balls on stand. Down track into hat. Rabbit from hat. Cannonball from hat in stand. Wraps rabbit in tissue. Rabbit vanishes. Makes rabbit reappear. But now it's two rabbits. Tambourine produces all manner of things from tambourine. Ending with a giant British flag or American flag depending upon where he was. And then he closed with DeColta's Expanding Die Illusion. In the book The Art of Magic by T. Nelson Downs, he says he remembers seeing Imro Fox first present the piano trick. Uh, This is the one with cards, the piano card trick, which can still be found in lots of books. So uh, that was one of the effects that Imro Fox was doing. In 1907, Imro Fox returned to London to the delight of the Europeans, but by January of 1908, he was called back to America. And there are a number of things that made Fox special. For one, his most of his humor was very self-deprecating. So the joke was always on him. Second, uh, he did a bit of uh, I guess you would call it slapstick humor by uh, tripping over his feet and he would often turn around and say, "Hey, don't push." Or uh, on occasion he would uh, he would bend over and pick up a pin and like he tripped over a pin, which is kind of funny when you think about it. He had several catchphrases, one of which was marvelous that he said after tricks. And that reminded me of years ago when Billy Crystal was on Saturday Night Live. He used to play a character who would say, you look marvelous. But um, that's what I think of when (laughs) I hear the word marvelous. Um, He would also say, watch the professor. And another one I liked was, waltz me again. Now, that one, I'm not sure exactly how he used that. Now, he had kind of a broken English, you know, German uh, influence in there when he spoke. So... I don't know if waltz me again is just kind of a funny to, a way to say, watch me again, or if it's kind of like uh, waltz me again, w- uh, you know, play a little waltz, which, um, uh, Rosini used to use. So I'm not sure how that was used, but it's still kind of a cute little saying in the March, 1909 edition of Stanions magic. There's a trick on page one called the wizards breakfasts. Uh, and this is, um, Imro Fox's Routine, so you can check that out. Here's an effect from the Crest Magician magazine, page 54, February 1908. It goes like this. Cagliostro's box. When Mr. Fox displays it, it's a little affair, into which one might conveniently stow half a dozen silk handkerchiefs. By the time he has set it down upon a plain wooden pedestal and surrounded it for the briefest possible moment by a simple uh, draft screen, the box has developed prodigious proportions, and when it is unlocked by a key which has never left Mr. Fox's hands, it is found to contain what old English writers would have described as, in good faith, a most comely damsel. This is, of course, DeColta's expanding die in Imro Fox's hands. On March 4th, 1910, Imro Fox was performing at Keith and Proctor's Theatre, though one source says it was Schubert's Theatre. But anyway, I'm going with Keith and Proctor's Theatre in Utica, New York. He had gone back to his hotel for the night. In the early morning hours, he went down to the lobby of the hotel, requesting someone summon a doctor. Fox went and sat down on a chair. Thirty minutes later, the doctor arrived, went to examine Imro Fox. He was pronounced dead of acute indigestion. A further report, this time by Will Goldston, said that Fox had been enjoying a meal when a piece of food lodged in his windpipe, and despite frantic efforts to have it removed, he suffocated before the doctor arrived. I think both of those probably are are the full story. And here's an interesting twist to Imro Fox's life. Apparently, while he was still alive, he told Dr. Elliot that he was not born in Germany, but in fact born in New York City. However... I have found his passport, and it clearly says he was born in Germany, though he was a naturalized citizen of the U.S. His S.A.M. number was 66, and Harry Rouclair is said to have either purchased or inherited the bulk of Imro Fox's props. He is buried in Evergreen Cemetery. 1137 North Broad Street, Hillside, New Jersey. This is for certain. Although if you look through the Magic magazines, they're going to tell you that it was Greenwood Cemetery in Newark. That is wrong. I know it for a fact because I spent two hours last night trying to find Imro Fox's grave online. And it was not in Greenwood Cemetery. And it turned up. I found it in the Evergreen Cemetery in Hillside, New Jersey. So, uh, it's there. By the way, if anybody wants to go over to uh, Evergreen Cemetery and take a photograph of the uh, grave and send it to me, I would greatly appreciate that because I have another uh, another website which is Dead Conjurers uh dot blogspot.com which is a place where i post photos of the graves of magicians so i'd love to have a picture of Imro fox's grave over there and that my friends is going to do it for this episode of the magic detective podcast i hope you have enjoyed this episode please remember to like the podcast and if you're listening via iTunes a five star review will well will help me greatly Until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Be well and be safe.